Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. History often deals with massive events that have widespread effects like warfare, political revolution, or intellectual movements. However, not all of these events are caused by human beings. Today we're going to talk about smallpox, perhaps the most deadly illness we've ever faced as a species. Smallpox ravaged populations for thousands of years with no discrimination, and this lethality undoubtedly left its mark on our history. Let's begin. All right, I'm here on HI 101 with Jillian Weber. Hey, Adam. How's it going? Very well. How are you? Excellent. And we're going to be talking smallpox today. So much fun with smallpox. Congratulations on helping me to pick what is definitely the most disgusting topic ever on this show. (laughs) I did some uh, Google image searching and and, uh, regretted the decision. It's a horrendous disease. It's it's not one I would pick for myself. (laughs) Yeah, that's an understatement. The the thing that's a little bit different about this show from other shows that we've done is that smallpox has a really, really wide time span. It yes. doesn't have like a nice, simple narrative, like when we're talking about last time the space race or mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, German unification or something like that. Where yeah. it's, it's nice and, and pat. It's a small time scale. Mm-hmm. We can sort of pick a beginning and an end. I suppose there is a beginning and an end to, to smallpox in that we, we cured it. Yes, there's a definitive end. Yeah, there's a very, well, almost. Almost? We'll get to it. Oh, that was a tease. We'll get to it. What an exciting show. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but it does it does span a long, long time. And what's kind of interesting about smallpox is that when we talk about smallpox, we kind of stray into talking about all medicine right. for about the past 2,000 years, <laughs> which is... Interesting, but man, it was a little bit hard to keep it on on target sometimes. Yeah, for sure. So we might as well get started with talking about what smallpox is. Mm -hmm. I was we were we were talking before we started recording. When I was growing up, I basically assumed it was like really bad chicken pox. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had chicken pox when you were a kid. Did you? I did. It kind of sucked for a couple weeks. You're all itchy. You got some spots. You got the pink lotion. Uh huh. Calamine lotion. Yeah. You got the bath. Mm -hmm. You got the exposure to other children. Did you do the whole my smallpox did. club thing? <laughs> my parents did. There's smallpox club. Whoa, that's a different kind of club. <laughs> Chickenpox club. <laughs> they went with the chickenpox club. Yeah, I think I must have caught it at a babysitter's or something like that. And, yeah, but it, it wasn't anything planned. There was no let's let's give it to the entire. I think I was the facilitator. Of, oh no! Of, of a the itch of, of so many children <laughs> is on your head. Sorry, other children of Jillian's social group. Oh well. <laughs> 
that is not the case at all. Smallpox is very, very different from chickenpox. Yes. It's really, really terrible. It's, um, well, it's a viral infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, the, the virus is called variola. Mm-hmm. We'll get back to why that's important later. It makes things a lot easier later. Okay. It is technically able to be transmitted airborne, mm-hmm. but mostly it's through contact. So either from, and, and we're going to get right into this, <laughs> either from the, 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 when you're infected with the, the virus, your saliva is just laced with the stuff. Okay. So coughing can transmit it if you're kind of face-to-face. Right. Or either the dried pus or the scabs that fall off of the pox themselves both hold the virus for a fairly long time. And if you touch I, any materials that have come in contact with that infectious material, you can contract the disease. Okay. So very, very infectious. Mm-hmm. The main way it gets in is... is through your nose and mouth so mucous membranes into your lymph nodes it sits in there for about two weeks spreads all through your body like everywhere it can get second wave we get into flu-like symptoms so you get the fever the muscle aches the headache fatigue uh, a lot of times nausea and gastrointestinal stuff going on really badly this is about the time when it's getting into your blood your marrow and your spleen what time of day does this podcast get released like, is it before or after breakfast? <laughs> before breakfast. It's usually through the night. All right. <laughs> people people are going to listen when they listen. There's nothing I can do about that. It's titled Smallpox. I don't know what to... <laughs> Make your own decisions. Folks. I don't know what else to say. I already said this was going to be disgusting. So we're, we're not done that yet, though. So once your temperature starts going back down a little bit you get mm-hmm. these little um, dots all inside your mouth okay that that swell up and then burst and that's when you get like really infectious with the, the saliva all right mm-hmm. and right around this this time you get spots all over your body so in a 24 to 36 hour period so one day it starts at your forehead moves down across your entire body mm-hmm. and then out over your limbs and it's these little tiny pimple looking things they're all about the same size mostly concentrated on your face mm-hmm. it's really uncomfortable they're very itchy does it look like small or pardon me chicken pox like yes and no it looks similar to chicken pox chicken pox tend to vary in size though mm-hmm. Smallpox are all very very uniform okay and smallpox are much more concentrated okay. like your face is like encrusted with the things there's more there's more spots than there is skin Encrusted is a is a good descriptor there. That's very evocative. <laughs> I've been looking at a lot of pictures lately. <laughs> you too. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a bunch of them. So after a while, the spots become raised and filled with uh, liquid, but it's not pus yet. It's just fluid. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest dangers with smallpox is, is dehydration because of this process. Right. And then after a while, the, the, the liquid disperses and it turns to pus, which is even more disgusting. So we've gone from the spots, which are called macules, to the fluid ones, which is vesicles. Now we're to pustules, okay. which is my, my new least favorite word. I was going to say, that's like the most disgusting word. Like that and carbuncle. Mm-hmm. Like truly horrifying words. Another weird thing about smallpox is it actually affects the soles of your feet and the palms of your hands, which mm-hmm. most other spot diseases don't do. Mm-hmm. I'm just imagining just like how itchy and uncomfortable that would be like all the time anyways there's there's way worse I'm imagining things to consider it like a but... horror movie just like 
No, it's on the hands. It's the smallpox. Yeah, it's something to be very worried about. So after a week, all of these pustules deflate mm-hmm. and they they scab over. They crust over, and then all of these scabs shed off, and you're left with scars underneath. Okay. Um, you have in general a one in three chance of dying of this illness. I don't. I don't know how to respond to that statistic. I want to ask of. Like, if if it were to happen now. This is generalized. We don't technically have a treatment for smallpox now because it's been eradicated. No one ever found a treatment for it before it was was taken care of through vaccination. Right. There are some theories on how to treat it. There's some ideas of what could be done to to, to actually alleviate the, the infection. That's just avoided, though. Mostly what you can do to deal with smallpox is... Supportive care, so keeping people properly hydrated, monitor their electrolyte levels, mm-hmm. um, which is a big concern. We're not, this is the other, the other thing, we're not entirely sure how exactly smallpox kills you. We're pretty sure that multiple organ failure is involved somehow, but we're not 100% sure. Mm-hmm. Again, it, it's, it's, been a, it's, it's been gone for a while, and yeah. we didn't really get that much testing in on it, and that's okay by me. Better just to get rid of it than to... Than to tinker. There's a one in three chance of dying. I mean, that's... And that's just generalized, too. If you're a child and you get smallpox, Mm -hmm. your chances are much higher of dying closer to 60%. Um, And if you happen to get one of the more complicated forms of smallpox, like sometimes what can happen is the the, the little bumps can sort of merge together into more of like a sheet. And if that form happens, you have something like an 80% chance of dying. There's a hemorrhagic form where basically it's, yeah, you start bleeding underneath the the pustules and you're you're basically for sure going to die if you get that one. It's a really, it's a really Uh, terrible, terrible disease. Lives up to its name. There's a reason that smallpox features so prominently in our medical past Mm -hmm. because there aren't many diseases that are, are this... Uh, both this widespread and this horrific. For me, it's like I thought it was interesting when you said that as a child you thought of it as, you know, a worse form of chickenpox. For me, it's always just been a vague historical threat. Something like dropsy or something like that that you don't exactly know what... Yeah, uh... just like, you know, it would it would show up in a population and, you know, smallpox blankets and just yeah. eradicate. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a there was a time in the 18th century in Europe where you were virtually guaranteed to get smallpox. Mm-hmm. Just you, you would get smallpox. Wow. You might you might be able to walk away without some scarring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it only scarred in about 60 percent of cases where people survived. You, you know, you see pictures of people in in sort of Baroque era Europe with this the you know these powders and makeups caked onto their face. That's mm-hmm. to hide smallpox scarring. Really? Yes. Well, I mean, fashion as well, but this is a functional form of fashion. Wow. They all were so well. The the word pockmarked mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. comes from here. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was called smallpox, by the way, to distinguish from the great pox, which was uh, syphilis, which oh. also formed big blobby pustules which was was also not something you should google image search oh boy (laughs) it's it's gruesome but the 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 pustules were much bigger so great and small that's that's really all it comes down to for the uh for the uh the english name Hmm. and the other thing we kind of have to talk about when we're when we're looking at putting smallpox in a historical context is 
how people understood illnesses because the current way that medicine talks about and classifies and treats illness is about 150 years old, really, yeah. all things considered. So for most of the period that we're going to be talking about, it, it, it's, a, it's a much different understanding of how illness works, how right. it's transmitted, what it does to the body, what it even is. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be talking really quick about the four humors. Okay. Are you familiar with the system? Not enough to speak intelligently <laughs> about them. They come up periodically in, in English classes where we deal with historical knowledge of things. Yeah. Basically, there was this belief. It, it's been around probably several thousands of years. It's probably It probably began in Mesopotamia or in Egypt, but was really codified for, for the West in Greece, about 400 BCE. Mm-hmm. Basically, what they believed was that the body had four vital fluids in it there's the blood the phlegm the yellow bile and the black bile okay blood is obvious yellow bile is sort of digestive phlegm isn't phlegm as we would think of it it's more of a clear liquid that was associated with the brain that no one ever really isolated i mean these are these are more theoretical than they are actually physical substances right and then Black bile had something to do with the spleen, and I, it, it gets very vague with the black bile, but it's got certain characteristics associated with it, right? Seems like a lot of their medical knowledge was pretty vague. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and each of the humors had a, a temperature and a state associated with it, either hot and cold, hot or cold, and dry or wet. Mm-hmm. So uh, blood was hot and wet were, the, was, were its two characteristics. And each humor was associated with a certain organ. So phlegm, as I said, was the brain. The black bile was spleen. Blood was heart. And yellow bile was liver. Okay. And basically, this this is conjecture on my part. I'm going to go, I'm going to be completely (laughs) honest about this. But basically what this gave them was some sort of framework, uh, uh, some sort of frame of reference for talking about their observations of how the, the human body interacted with mainly foods and things like that, because you're not really looking at pharmaceuticals or even minerals yeah. in a lot of cases here, but how those things affected the, the temperament of the human body, as well as how different diseases affected the human body. Mm-hmm. So you'd get things like different... When, when someone was ill, they would assume that the, one of the humors was out of balance yeah. and that they had to somehow fix this balance. Mm-hmm. What you would often get was if they believed that blood was in excess, they would they would bleed the person, right? You've heard of... Uh, bleeding yes. blood is hot and wet how many other diseases are hot and wet like uh, like a lot of them think of think of a fever like what's more what's more hot and wet as a disease than like sweating through a fever i i can't think of a one there you go um, so if you're too hot and you're too wet get rid of some blood that's probably going to sort it out also you get things like classification of foods in different uh, in different categories so I think really what happens here is that what temperature and what state is something like, I don't know, chamomile. It, what is it? You can't pick it, right? Like, so no. you make up what it seems to affect because mm-hmm. you know that, I don't remember exactly, but say that, the, that uh, you know, trouble with sleep has something to do more with a phlegmatic response, maybe, which is wet and cold. If you're having trouble sleeping, not enough wet and cold, maybe chamomile is wet and cold. And I feel like a lot of those classifications sort of worked more along those lines yeah. than the thing itself. I mean, look at something like uh, peppermint for digestive. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, digestive is hot and dry. Mm-hmm. Peppermint, 
I mean, it kind of feels cool in the mouth, but it's also kind of spicy. Yeah. Is that hot or is that cold? This does not feel like a stable solution to medical problems. <laughs> Strangely enough, it didn't often work. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm all for peppermint tea, but sure. But, but I don't feel like I don't feel like they'd they'd establish a solid system here. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of the issue here is that they don't understand what disease is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're a long way out from germ theory here. A really long way out. <laughs> Interestingly enough, there are similar systems in Chinese medicine and in Indian medicine, Ayurvedic mm-hmm. medicine. They they all related to humors within the body that were related to fundamental elements, yeah. which is the same as the you know the the fire, earth, water that we get with the the four humors. Yeah, and you usually got extra things in there, like uh, with Chinese medicine, you had the the yin yang. Mm-hmm. Um, that were sort of governing how the thing, how how the substances were going to interact with the human body. So right. very similar medical systems. Something that was classified as being, you know, tied to a fire element in Western medicine could very easily be a water element in Chinese medicine, and neither of them would really have any problems with that because at the end of the day, it's not some sort of mythical element that they're tied to. It's it's you know, chemical reactions within the body, but yeah. biology is a little beyond them at this point. So let's give them a pass. The, the important thing here is that all three major civilization centers there are working on a very similar uh, internal balance mm-hmm. system of understanding of health. It is interesting that we've actually returned to a lot of that. Yeah. In and, terms and, of trying to balance. And a lot of that balance is looking back at these systems and kind of going, okay, well, what worked out of this, what didn't. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's nothing new. It's absolutely yeah. nothing new. The other thing that you need to know is that there were really three main methods of transmission of disease in sort of the, the classical systems of medicine. Okay. First off is a curse or magic. Mm-hmm. You got sick because either someone else cast a magic spell on you mm-hmm. or you were being possessed by a demon. Right. Something along those lines. So you got a lot of cures that involved talismans, spells, prayers to deities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, smallpox had its own. Uh, god in a number of systems i found seven different smallpox gods I, not some of some of them weren't specifically really? smallpox but yeah. often diseases of like that that general sort uh, a, a major one in uh, in hinduism is satala um mm-hmm. who was the god of of or goddess sorry of of plagues and okay. she gave you smallpox and you prayed to her and she took it away again which sounds like a really terrible arrangement to me personally but <laughs> I mean, you've got smallpox, what else are you going to do? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The second way you could get a disease was uh, a contagion, which was something that was passed from sick person to sick person. And the idea was that there was some sort of poison or toxin that one sick person could introduce to another person. Okay. Uh, The same way that if you were to give them a dose of arsenic, they're going to die. It's the same thing. There there was very little difference between that and giving someone typhoid fever or something like that just mm-hmm. a very direct translation right mm-hmm. that one tended to be best dealt with because there's sort of this person-to-person chain of cause and effect right they could see the they could see the connections mm-hmm. but a lot of diseases aren't specifically contagion based most yeah. of them have several components to it mm-hmm. and we'll get into that a little bit later as well and the third one that we need to talk about is something called miasma miasma was this idea of bad air and basically, it was this idea that sort of the quality of the atmosphere around you could affect your health, Okay. which isn't technically untrue, but yeah. not in the way that they're talking about. They're talking about things like noxious 
odors giving you certain specific diseases. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you... And, and specifically, uh, they would also call it night air. Specifically at night, it was believed that the air could be worse for you. So okay. walking by an open sewer grate uh, at night could just straight up give you measles mm-hmm. in, in their conception of, of miasma. So you got a lot of cures. And you'll, you'll still see it even in... In, in stuff uh, in the 20th century where they'll prescribe fresh air to somebody as part of their cure. Yeah. The idea is to keep away from the miasma. Mm-hmm. And uh, miasma is where you, uh, it comes more into play with things like the bubonic plague where they have no idea where the illness is actually coming from necessarily yeah. and tends to result actually, interestingly enough, in quarantine because you want to keep the people who are making the air bad away from the good air. So right. that's kind of keep that locked down right so they were very much like relying on their own like sensory perception of what was going on around them absolutely it's all uh, whatever you can observe whatever you can understand on a very visual on a very real level if you can't see what's happening beyond that so you can't i mean if you're if you're in the 13th century in europe (laughs) and you're getting bit by fleas all the time anyways and one of them happens to be carrying the black plague you don't realize that's what (laughs) happens But you do know that you walked by that other guy's house and boy did it reek because everyone in there was either sick or dead. Yeah. And that's probably what gave it to you. Because, you know, the bad air. That probably wasn't helping. (laughs) That probably wasn't helping, you're right. But, you know, so there's there's this idea. Um, Interestingly enough, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of it, but there were uh, plague doctors in Europe that would wear this outfit that was uh, this, this big long leather overcoat. This sounds horrifying. It's it's honestly it's terrifying. This big long leather overcoat to keep from touching the plague victims, mm-hmm. and this mask, which was getting have, better. <laughs> it was this it was this metal mask with with uh, glass eyes and a big long beak, so it looked like a bird. And they would fill the beak with flowers or with potpourri or with fragrant oils mm-hmm. to keep good air around their face to try and ward off the plague. I can't wait to dream about this later tonight. Don't look up pictures if this is bothering you, because it's just as bad as you're imagining. It's probably worse. It's They also wear this weird hat, hat, wide-brimmed hat. No. That goes along with no. it. No. I don't know why it hasn't been in a horror movie, to be honest with you. So, under this system, smallpox was believed to be a, uh, a disease of the blood. Mm-hmm. It, it was it was a hot disease because you got a fever. Yeah. It was a wet disease because of the pustules. Okay. So that that points straight to blood, mm-hmm. and it was believed that, like in a lot of these cases, it wasn't so much that there was some sort of foreign invader into the body. It was that something caused a reaction to the body that made the body do something that was inherently part of the the body's nature all along. So they believe that when you got smallpox, there was a fermentation of your blood. Okay. There was too much blood and it began to ferment. And this fermentation, because fermentation causes bubbles, mm-hmm. the pox, and it causes the, you know, fermentation can, can uh, well, also the, the rising, right? Like the, the, the pustules would rise. Yeah. Um, also the faintness and the dizziness, mm-hmm. kind of like uh, a fermentation of, of alcoholic beverages. And they, they believe that it sort of rotted your blood from the inside with this process. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what they were doing was trying to bring that blood back into into balance because they believed that when someone had too much blood, this is a thing that your blood did. It started fermenting. Yeah. So not so much that you're getting an outside illness, but that your body is doing something that you don't want it to do and let's make it stop. It was very internalized. It's really interesting. I didn't realize that they had such a sophisticated, I mean, sophisticated for the time. They had like a whole 
they had a theory. Yeah, and I mean... based on other things. And I mean, this is the kind of thing that, you know, actual doctors and academics and, and philosophers would understand and the common population would just kind of get sick and then get better or not and go yeah. on with their lives. I yeah. mean, they wouldn't necessarily uh, understand the, the theory or mm-hmm. um, supposed framework behind it. But there was a theory. But there was a theory behind yeah. it. Now, I, I mean, generally speaking, there was a lot of times when we went like way sideways from this theory because you have to remember so many of these diseases were thought to have been caused by curses yeah. or, or, or possession and things like yeah. that. And that's where you get stuff like wearing talismans to ward off the plague and things like that. Yeah. Or you get weird stuff like, uh, you know, they would they would make you collect honey at the midnight of the full moon and then smear it on your face. And it's it's like, how's this going to help my cough? It's doesn't make sense, but okay, well... Antibacterial I, properties of honey. I heard it. I heard it helps, so let's give it a shot. Uh, it's 1,500 years ago, and I'm a poor farmer, and I'm pretty sure I'm dying, so hey, what do I have to lose? There's a lot of that going around. I mean, folk, late late night infomercials prey on the same kind of fear. Folk medicine. Folk medicine is really interesting. I'd love to get into it sometime, but oh my goodness, I don't know how I'd ever get it into a single show. There are way better places to find this this information, but it's it's fascinating because really it comes down to well, what do you have to lose? And yeah. and it's it's what do I have to lose? And I heard from somebody that this works. Those are the two foundations of folk medicine. Yeah. I so. heard from somebody can be a, a dangerous... Oh my goodness. A dangerous thing, though. Absolutely. <laughs> on, on a related subject. So the other issue with their understanding of disease that kind of comes up when talking about smallpox is that the idea of a discrete disease, because it's coming from within, the idea of a discrete disease doesn't really exist mm-hmm. all that clearly in the historical record because you get plagues. Yeah. It's just, there was a sickness. Lots and lots of people got sick. Mm -hmm. And if you get lucky, they might describe some of the symptoms that they got, maybe. If you get lucky. (laughs) Well, I mean, in in, in terms of if you're trying to narrow down what illness it was that they actually had. I mean, to this day, there's still argument over what, what... the Black Plague was exactly. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, we're, we're pretty sure what's going on, but yeah. there are also historical accounts, uh, like contemporary historical accounts of the Black Plague that the symptoms and the progression of the disease and, and all of this don't really match with what we know today as a bubonic plague. And people are still trying to really rectify. I mean, I saw an article last week on, on a new theory of how the plague got into Europe because the common story of, of rats to fleas to people doesn't always quite work properly. And huh. I don't know, this is this theory about gerbils. I, I'm not even making that <laughs> up. They thought that gerbils might be the culprit. So we've moved from blaming rats to blaming gerbils. I think this guy could be completely wrong. You never know. You never know. But the point is that it's still up for debate. Yeah. There's, there's still discussion about this. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I mean, in history, when things are uncertain, and especially in science, it's really important to kind of question things. And that's the only way you're really going to move towards a better understanding is to, to actually test these things out. But Absolutely. man, if we don't know what the Black Plague was, you know, and, and somebody writes down an account that's 2000 years old and says that there was this, you know, this huge illness and many fell dead and there were spots all over them. And that's all you have to go on. Mm-hmm. Was that measles? Was that black plague? Was, was that the, well, not the plague. They would Was that, completely... why are we storing our bodies in the drinking water? Yeah. Well, yeah. Is it measles? Is it a pox virus? Is it a, there's so many things that it could be. 
we just don't know. Yeah. So the final thing to remember when we're talking about illness historically is that hygiene is not a priority here. No. Smelling good is a priority because of the miasma. You Mm -hmm. don't want bad smells. But, I mean, for a lot of the time that we're talking here, you know, indoor sewage or indoor plumbing isn't really a big concern. Yeah, bucket Uh, out the window. Street cleanliness, not a big thing. Personal hygiene, not top priority. If you're going to pick a time to live. (laughs) How about one with hot showers? Just throwing that out there. I'm for it. So... You know, when, when we're talking about... All, I, I, I bring most of this stuff up because we're going to be talking about smallpox. And there's going to be times when we're talking about it where you go, what are you guys doing? <laughs> like, don't you know better? And it's really important to remember that, no, they don't. They did not They know really, better. really don't. Medicine, I, again, we figured out germ theory. Like, it, it got written down by an actual doctor mm-hmm. in 1854. Yeah. That's not long enough ago. Yeah. Those Purell dispensers on the wall. <laughs> That's a real new idea. That's a new thing. <laughs> so, you know, when, when these people are dealing with smallpox, they're just getting sick and they're dying in huge numbers and they have no idea why and they have no idea how to stop it. That must be terrifying. I can't imagine anything scarier. So now that we've got some groundwork laid out for, the, for smallpox... Uh, Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll look into some of the earliest accounts that we have of smallpox coming up. Yay! All right, we're back on HI101. I'm here with Jillian Weber. Still here talking about the pox. Absolutely. So we talked about what smallpox is. And we set up a bit of a framework for understanding how people back in the day thought about uh, smallpox. And it was mostly horrifying. Mostly horrifying. Again, I can't stop coming back to that one in three people dying stat. I'm still working on that image of the long leather coat and the mask. That was and... for the plague. That wasn't even for smallpox. That was no, a completely but, different but, thing. But just the, the whole like primitive practice of medicine that, that people were bled Fun fact about those those plague doctors, most of them... I bet this won't be fun. <laughs> most of them weren't real doctors, or were really bad doctors who couldn't get a better job, or were new doctors who hadn't managed to get a practice anywhere else, or just weren't doctors at all. They were... This is the first and last medical history podcast you do, I feel. <laughs> Why? Because I've got so many fun facts like this one? <laughs> Fun. Well, they were contracted. You, you can't out. see the scare quotes, but there are scare quotes. They were contracted. They were contracted out by the town. Yeah. They were given their own little house where they had to live in quarantine because of the miasma, mm-hmm. and it was their job to go and treat victims of the plague in their in their getup. They were contra- they, like a garbage man or something, <laughs> hired by the town to go and deal with it and make the call on like whether or not to quarantine a home, right. whether or not to give supportive care to people with the plague whether or not to go this one this one's not gonna make it everybody stay away this one's a goner and then like go go home at the end of the day and live alone in a hut quarantined yeah i still pick today to live this is like this is a contract job this isn't something you stick with your entire (laughs) life no one was a no one was a career plague doctor no one no one dreamed of of doing this when they were a child They were five years old. They looked up at that scary metallic beak and thought, <laughs> One day. <laughs> this is what I want to do with my life. 
One of the weird things about viruses is that they almost always come from other animals mm-hmm. and then sort of specialize to humans. Right. And smallpox is no different. I've seen estimates as to when this happened, ranging anywhere from like 70,000 years ago to 10,000 years ago. That's a stretch. I have my reasons to believe that it's less than 20,000 years. We will come to those reasons later. Oh, good. Reasons. Yep. You know what? I'm going to stop teasing things. I've teased too many things in this podcast. (laughs) It's because there was no smallpox in the Americas. And our understanding of things right now is that the the Americas were colonized beginning around 20,000 years ago. Okay. So it's unlikely that... Because the thing about smallpox is, as deadly as it is, it also moves very slowly. And it t- you, you have it for a long time. It's lethal, but it's lethal on a slow time scale. And that's why it's so effective at spreading through large populations. You're exposed to it. It incubates in you for 12 days, at which point in time you walk around and you feel fine. Yeah. And then when you finally come down with something, who knows how far away you are from the source. Right. One of the things, you know, I, I hate getting too topical with with this podcast, but one of the things about Ebola that you'll hear them talking about right now in Africa is that it's actually slowing down how quickly it kills people. Because if a virus kills people too quickly, it's a really poorly adapted virus. Mm -hmm. If it kills someone before it can find another host, it's not an effective virus. Right. Viral, Viral effectiveness is not measured on how quickly it can kill us. Man, that's a conceited way of looking at viruses. Yeah. Viral effectiveness is measured at how effectively the virus can propagate itself uh, to like, as widely as possible and to continue propagating itself. I'd never thought of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things that once once that kind of tweaks in, a lot of things about sort of any infectious disease stuff makes a lot more sense. Yeah. No, Ebola is slowing down and that's a bad thing. That's a really bad thing because as, as horrible as it is to die from a from a hemorrhagic disease like like Ebola mm-hmm. when it kills quickly it doesn't have like it doesn't give you time to walk around and spread it around to a whole bunch of other people yeah it tends to stay in a fairly small area mm-hmm. smallpox gives you this opportunity to a good two-week travel period before yeah. it even starts kicking in which allows it to spread geographically mm-hmm. fairly widely right so the idea that as many and, and we're unsure how many people actually migrated into the Americas over the the uh, the land bridge, but it's unlikely that if smallpox had been as effective as it is today, that it would have actually that it wouldn't have made it over in some form, or that the people that went over wouldn't have been exposed to it in some way at some point in time. Anyways, it's not impossible. It mm-hmm. could very easily have been before that migration, but that's my personal opinion as a complete non-expert and layperson. As a, as a person saying, you know, the thing about smallpox is... <laughs> well, that's why we're here. Yeah. The earliest recorded case that we have is an Egyptian pharaoh, Ramses V, mm-hmm. died of smallpox. That is... Uh, he died in 1145 BCE. We know that because he was mummified, and his mummified remains have smallpox scars all over them. That's kind of wild. That is kind of wild. So, I mean, it had to happen sometime, right? There was going to be an earliest person with smallpox. I'm just imagining what that looks like, though. It's not... I've seen pictures. It's not as visible as you might think. It, it, it would be more... 
that's the kind of thing that shows up when you do like x-ray scans and things like that Mm -hmm. the skin didn't look particularly pockmarked i mean smallpox scarring is definitely visible but it's not it's 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 as much pigmented as it is like uh structural Mm -hmm. so it's it's more about it's more about the coloration than anything else you do get some some scar tissue as like textured but mummies don't tend to have much in the way of pigment uh differentiation yeah they are they're all pretty like uniformly brown that kind of takes care of most of the visual um appearance of the the smallpox scars yeah but somewhat jerky like yeah it's not far off sorry everybody (laughs) did you know did you know hey we're gonna go on a completely separate tangent (laughs) did you know that in the 1800s when egyptology was really taking off Mm -hmm. uh mummies were using a lot of medicinal remedies no, but that is also horrifying. <laughs> they would grind them up into powder uh, and use them for headaches. Like not even like big stuff, but like oh, I've got a, I've got a headache. I need a pinch oh, I've, of. I've got this mummy lying. I've around. got a pinch of mu- I need a pinch of mummy dust. Carry me right through this, which is like if you think about it, just like really delayed cannibalism, <laughs> which is kind of messed up. But I just like kind this idea. Of messed up. I just like this idea of these really fancy Victorian English people sitting around <laughs> with a snuff box full of powdered mummies. That's exactly what I'm picturing. And they're like sprinkling it into their tea because, you know, they've got the vapors or whatever. Those freaky Victorians. <laughs> just eat, like eating mummies. Come on, guys. What are you doing? Ah, oh, British Empire. <laughs> oh, and I mean, it wasn't just the British. The French ran on it, too. It was very, very popular for a while there. I, I shudder, like, on a more serious note, I shudder to think how many incredibly important mummies were destroyed so that somebody could give themselves a placebo effect over their headache. That's that's what I was thinking, just, like, where were these mummies taken from? The Valley of the Dead in Egypt. Grave robbers would go in, they would steal all the gold, they would take the corpse, and they would sell it to, well, they, they would sell it through a network that would eventually end up in the hands of, yeah... Yeah. That's distressing. And I mean, it's less doctors selling that stuff and more snake oil salesmen. It's more at that end of the spectrum. Yeah. Because doctors weren't that dumb. <laughs> Even back then. <laughs> they absolutely ate mummies. That was that was a weird thing that people did for a while. Talk about your fad cures. <laughs> I don't even have any sort of response to that. I'm just thinking of, like, overstuffed furniture and... and... A box full of mummy. I'm just thinking of the irony of someone taking a pinch of Ramsey's the Fifth to try and cure their smallpox. <laughs> oh. Anyways, that never happened, thank goodness, because now we know about the earliest uh, recorded case of smallpox. <laughs> now, smallpox back then wasn't quite the same as the one that ravaged the world for 3,000 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it would have made its way from e- Egypt over into India. Right. India's always been fairly heavily populated, like always. Yeah. And infectious diseases tend to do better in heavily populated areas. It's just easier to transmit them. Makes it kind of sense. It, yeah, absolutely. So the modern version of smallpox kind of evolved in the Indian subcontinent, as far as we can tell, and would have spread from there in both directions, both into China and into sort of Persia, Egypt. Right. Uh, that area so here's where we kind of run into something that we were talking about earlier which is that they'll talk about plagues but won't be 
real specific about what kind of plague it was. It because, could be any of them. Yeah, doctors would maybe describe some of the symptoms, but they wouldn't be specific enough to nail it down necessarily. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple of plagues that we believe could have been smallpox coming into Europe, and those would have been sort of the first inroads into into Europe for the disease. There was uh, there was one called the uh, the Plague of Athens in 430 BCE. Mm-hmm. This was during the what was called the Peloponnesian War, right. which is when Athens and Sparta went to war against each other, and they absolutely had colonies throughout the Mediterranean, so they could very easily have brought diseased soldiers in from Anatolia, like modern-day Turkey, uh, in from Egypt, that would have carried the disease. And armies are also a really great place for spreading plague because you have a whole bunch of people living real close together in not the best conditions. Yeah. Yeah. So there was definitely a plague that happened during that war. Could have been smallpox, could have been something else. Again, we just know it as the Plague of Athens. Yeah. There was the Antonine Plague of 165 uh, CE, that was the other thing that would happen. They would just name the plague after whoever was in charge <laughs> that year. The Antonine Plague was, yeah. Uh, and then there was a plague of Cyprian in 251 CE. Again, Cyprian would have been the, the Roman emperor at the time. That's how you want to be immortalized, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, great, the, the Obama Plague of 2015. <laughs> great, thanks. Like... That's, but that's the problem. They, they, just, they just immortalize it by the year because most of the people writing this down are going like, hey, everybody, remember 215? Wasn't that rough? <laughs> Who was in charge of that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's probably his fault. <laughs> so those could have been smallpox. We don't know for sure. Could have been measles. Could have been a number of other diseases as well. The first recorded incidents in India were in the year 400. Probably smallpox. Again, we're not entirely sure. We know it was there for a lot longer than that because of archaeological records, like uh, you know, studying studying burial sites and things like that. But that's the first one that was actually recorded by medical professionals. So it's kind of like starting to show up here and there. It kind of pops up and then goes away again. Yeah. A lot of what's probably happening here is that smallpox was probably killing too fast. Right. Burns itself out. Mm-hmm. What it's working towards is this more mature longer lasting form that's more transmittable yeah in 581 uh bishop gregory of tours tours france wrote down the first definitive smallpox description he finally gave enough uh detail about a plague that we can go that one is smallpox there it for is sure. right there 581 thanks bishop gregory <laughs> and, and it's helpful to have this information because it's it, it's helpful to look back to the source and to the migration and to the evolution patterns of these viruses when trying to understand where they came from, how they work, mm-hmm. because they, I mean, they have they have family trees just like any other, you know, animal or plant or fungus. They 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 group together. They have family traits that are useful to to understand and to to know. But it's really hard to track back, especially for something like a disease when we didn't really understand that viruses existed until 150 years ago yeah yeah you just so, had to get a close enough description yeah you could identify it yeah from the symptoms which yeah. and and i mean symptoms are tricky enough as it is things display with with unusual symptoms all the time it's not always 100 percent by the book mm-hmm. although smallpox did tend to follow a very very similar course in most people like down to the day when things happened really yeah you could basically judge how long ago someone got smallpox by where they were in the disease's progression interesting yeah it's i think more than any other disease 
a, the the human disease. It was the single one that was sort of tailored to our species the most uh, closely. A lot of the other things kind of came from other animals at different times. They either burn way too fast or way too slow that, you know, it doesn't really bother us that much or it kills a whole bunch of us really quickly, but not quickly enough to gain the evolutionary experience to mature into a human disease. Seems like smallpox had a good long run. It hit this sweet spot where, again, didn't kill people too fast, but was also super lethal. Yeah. And smallpox doesn't care about its own lethality, as we said before. Yeah. But it spread everywhere Mm. everywhere so in that way it was a very successful virus in the ninth century this persian doctor uh i'll I'll write down his actual name in the notes i wouldn't have been able to pronounce it i was gonna say are you gonna try and say it we call him racist um wrote what was called the book of smallpox and measles he was the first medical professional to actually distinguish between smallpox chickenpox and measles man that sounds like a fun read (laughs) I, you know, I'm almost curious how it reads. A lot of those old-timey medical texts are, I don't know, almost charming in the way they describe diseases, which I know is a weird reaction to it, but they, they use this very, like, detached and often, like, kind of poetic way of describing these really horrible symptoms that happen to people. Sounds like Jane Austen. <laughs> I suppose, in a way. Smallpox continued kind of moving into... Europe and then falling back, moving and falling back. It didn't really take hold until the uh, the Crusades, which began in the 11th century, where mm-hmm. Crusader knights were bringing it back constantly from Palestine. Armies again? Yes, but also pilgrims. Right. Because the first crusade, they actually managed to take Jerusalem and they held it for some time. And in that time, German and French pilgrims would actually make the journey to the Holy Land to see it for themselves. For a long time, that was closed off to them. So you had this steady flow, both of soldiers and of just tourists and it takes 12 days for you to get that disease yeah which is like most of your way home if you pick it up there Mm -hmm. it's a lot of your way home once it finally took hold in europe that was basically what they call the endemic reservoir for the disease for pretty much the rest of the time that we're going to talk about which is basically to say that the main bulk of of smallpox sort of vanilla smallpox lived in in europe (laughs) And was spread from there out to different places in the world. Mm -hmm. This is mostly a function of sort of European exploration and colonialism and and all of that. But also because even compared to a lot of China, Europe is tiny and dense. Like, Like China was very metropolitan, but you have, you know, big cities and then you have huge expanses of farm in between. Yeah. Europe is tiny i think i said a lot already but it's it's little it's really crammed together it's it's there's a lot less than 12 days journey time between most of europe yeah like a lot of the points in europe you can see a lot of countries in three days yes so it just was it it was a really natural fit for smallpox Mm -hmm. it just felt real comfortable there and from here on out more and more people will get smallpox every year just constantly until as i mentioned earlier by the 1700s if you lived in Europe, you got smallpox. Like you were, you're gonna get it. Uh, depends Good luck on to you. depends on what age you get it. If yeah. you're old enough, you have a one in three shot. If you're a kid, you have like a. Uh, I mean, you have usually around a, a one in three chance of surviving. So. So no smallpox parties. Not, not really. People didn't want it. They really, really didn't. That being said, there is something very important about smallpox which is that if you get smallpox 
you probably will never ever get smallpox again. 98% of people who get smallpox Mm -hmm. will never get it again in their entire lives. Mm -hmm. And people back then were kind of dumb on some stuff, but they weren't that dumb. They were paying attention to that. They noticed. So, So they realized that you know, if you got it, you're free and clear. Like, you can breathe easy. If you survive smallpox, mm-hmm. okay. That's that's one less thing keeping you up at night. Does that figure prominently in the end of the story of smallpox? Absolutely, it does. It's very, very important. There are other things that become really important in, in wiping out smallpox. But that's, I mean, that's that's coming into the story actually very shortly. But let's get back to some of these beats that I wanted to hit. Uh, Africa is also going to see an infection around the, the 10th century, 11th century as well. What you get in Africa is a lot of trade routes on the uh, the east coast of Africa coming in from the Arabic world mm-hmm. that are trading uh, in natural resources with right. Africa. And then several centuries later, you're going to see on the west coast all the way along uh, trading posts that are set up by the Portuguese, who by that point are just riddled with smallpox. So the way you see smallpox spread through Africa is basically just along these trade routes. If you're away from the trade routes, you are probably fine. But if you were being brought into contact with these steady streams of back and forth resources, you had a much higher chance of contracting the disease. Makes sense. Uh, There were no real definitive records of smallpox until the 16th century in Africa. It was there. It was there for sure. There's a big difference between... and, And I keep bringing this up because... In history, it's really important to have some sort of something to point to and go, okay, well, there's the proof that something happened. We can't just make up stories. We can't just go, okay, well, probably this is what's going on here. Probably that's what happened. Yeah. It would make sense for this. You know, it, it's it's okay kind of informally in conjecture, but really what we're looking for is some doctor that wrote down hey, there's some smallpox going on. And we can be like, now we know for sure. Look, definitive. Exactly. But yeah, it, it was definitely happening before that. We're going to get to the part of the story I was looking forward to the least now. There was a man named Hernan Cortez. I don't know if you've ever heard of Cortez. Cortez, in 1519, was sent by the king of Spain uh, to look for gold in the New World. Yeah. He stopped off on uh, the island of Hispanoa where there was already a smallpox outbreak thanks to the... I mean, Europeans have been there like 15 years. They'd already brought smallpox to that island. Thanks to Europeans. Ravaged by smallpox. He stopped off, got some more soldiers there, most of whom were carrying smallpox, picked up these extra smallpox-ridden soldiers, and with about 500 men and like 13 horses or something like that, just rode right into what is now Mexico. Yeah. Rode up to... The capital of the Aztec Empire, uh, Tenochtitlan, which was now Mexico City. So I'm not going to say that word anymore, and we're just going to go with Mexico City, even though that's wrong. You heard it once, and that's all you get. We all know what we're talking about now. He rode up. On the way, he kind of like made friendly with some of the local tribes and stuff. So he also had about 1,100 native soldiers with him. Rode up and basically said, hey, give us all your gold, and also I want to be king here now. Solid plan. Didn't go well for him, though, funnily enough. Montezuma was like, no, I don't think that's going to work for me. He did think Cortes might be the embodiment of Quetzalcoatl, the Aztec god, which probably made him less hard on Cortes than he should have been. Cortes took off for a while, came back, wanted to see if Montezuma had come to his senses, 
and found the city basically destroyed by smallpox. Pretty much everyone had died. Moctezuma himself was dying of smallpox. And so with like a couple hundred troops, Cortez went, sweet, it's mine now. Stole a bunch of their gold, toppled the Aztec Empire. The smallpox spread along the Aztecs' roads, which were very, very good and allowed lots of travel in 12 days' time. Managed to get into the Incan Empire system. Killed between 90 and 95% of the Incan Empire before they really even made any contact with Europeans. Here's the thing about the migration to the Americas. I keep saying here's the thing, and it's starting to bother me, but that's okay. It's a really important thing to understand about it. Not a lot of people came across that land bridge. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that helps the most with infectious diseases is genetic diversity. Right. So... This is one of those things that sounds like it's getting you in a lot of trouble when you say it out loud, but really what we're talking about here is a biological fact and not sort of any assertion about the the, the quality of any people. So we're going to have to just cop to it because it's really important about the, uh, in, in this story. The genetic diversity of Native Americans is extremely low in, in comparison to Europeans in comparison to anyone else on the Eurasian continent or even the African continent. And one part of the spread of, the, of infectious diseases is that people have sort of immunotypes in a really similar way to the way they have blood types. Right. And so even, even people who are fairly closely related could have fairly different um, immunotypes, which means that a disease will have to overcome their particular set of immuno uh, immune defenses in order to infect that person doesn't mean that they can't Mm -hmm. but it means that the virus has to work harder so if you and i have different immunotypes it's not that i can't give you the same cold that i have Mm -hmm. it's that my cold is going to have to work a little bit to get past your your immune system Mm -hmm. if you and i have the same immunotype that virus has learned by attacking me mm-hmm. how to beat that immunotype yes. and it can jump right in and you're going to be oh so sick oh so fast because it's already got it yeah europeans i these numbers aren't going to qu- quite be right i'll have to fact check them later europeans had around 30 different immunotypes on average in about this point of time to- at about this point of time native americans had around 7 that which doesn't bode well at all already makes it even for simple diseases, makes it a lot easier for diseases to move very quickly through a population. Mm-hmm. That and Native Americans hadn't been dealing with smallpox for the last, you know, in, in some cases uh, on the Eurasian continent, thousand years. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in Europe, they had been looking at this for, for 500 years. The evolution of a disease works two ways. One, the the virus itself learns how to better spread itself through a population, but the human population also adapts through um, selective pressure. People who are more susceptible to dying from a disease are going to die first before they have the chance to reproduce. Therefore, people who are more resistant to the the disease are going to pass along their genes to their offspring, resulting in a more resilient population overall to that disease. Mm -hmm. So through 500 years of just really terrible illness Europeans have gotten better at dealing with smallpox their yeah. chances have gone down to the 30 percent area time to take it to other peoples you have a disease that they've never come across before you have a disease that travels really quickly mm-hmm. because it's it's got such a long incubation time and 
there's this myth about the American continents that when Europeans got there, they were more or less empty. I mean, there were native bands, obviously, but there's this sort of idea that native bands were these hunter-gatherer societies that yeah. were very unestablished, that, you know, you had the Incas and the Aztecs and the Mayans down in South America, but that North America had almost nothing, that even the, you know, the Incan empire had more or less disappeared before we got there. Yeah. That this, Undiscovered. Yeah, undiscovered, virgin territory, all of this. Probably between 90 and 95% of the population of the Americas was wiped out by smallpox before Europeans ever saw them. Early accounts of the exploration of North and South America are full of accounts of explorers coming upon villages that were ghost towns, that were completely empty. Wow. That were void of any people whatsoever. Probably what had happened was the vast majority of di- had died of smallpox, and the ones who hadn't fled to other villages, possibly carrying smallpox Taking with them. Taking smallpox right along with them. There were, there were villages all over North, North America. It's not as though there was just nothing. The reality of the situation is that completely without malicious intent or forethought Mm -hmm. Europeans simply by being vessels for this disease Mm -hmm. wiped out the entire nearly the entire population of this entire hemisphere without even realizing that they had done so I need a sec that's a completely different that's a that's a massive change in the way that I think about them coming over to the new world and finding like sort of scattered peoples and I'm going to try not to be too bitter or cynical about the way that we talk about this because yeah. it, you know it, it it does really rattle me it's 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 kind of an upsetting thing to talk about but there's a couple of reasons that we think about or that we're taught about North and South America the way that we are mm-hmm. one of them is that the people who survive something like smallpox are hunter gatherers and it's not as though there weren't migrant populations in North America. There were. There absolutely were. Mm -hmm. But the best way not to get ravaged by a smallpox outbreak is not to be tied down to one specific spot. Yeah. And to not have a ton of contact with other peoples. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people that they did find were living more of a hunter-gatherer style um, existence. The second is that in order for european populations to occupy all of this space there needs to be sort of a collective agreement to a mythology of uh, an empty land to settle yeah this is where we're trying real hard not to be bitter about this mm-hmm. and this especially comes into play in what when you're talking about the the expansion of the frontier in the american west mm-hmm. You have to tell yourself that there's nothing there in order to convince yourself that you are entitled to it. You also have to downplay the complexity of the civilizations that you're displacing in the process in order to make yourself feel better about, and again, scare quotes, bringing them civilization. Mm -hmm. Because in that paradigm, you're helping them. Mm -hmm. They were living a worse lifestyle before and by, you know, westernizing it, you're, you're helping them. Which is a... I mean, yeah. you get into cultural relativism, which is a completely different rabbit hole to yes. go down right now. Yeah. But suffice it to say that Native peoples were uh, far more numerous than we often hear about and more far so- more complex and sophisticated than we tend to hear about. Than we'd like to admit. I, I, think, I, I do think it's interesting that you said, you know, without malicious intent. Because it's like they wouldn't have known the exact way that they were 
spreading this disease. I the, mean, there's a really good book called 1491. People have strong feelings about it one way or the other. I think it's really useful at least to give a, a starting point of, of sort of changing how we think about the Americas mm-hmm. in, in relation to us and how we think about what was going on in the Americas before Europeans ever came even remotely close to it. One of the, one of the things that really stood out to me in that book was when the author asked an expert, is there any way that American peoples could have survived first contact with the Europeans? Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and this expert was stumped. And the best he could come up with was maybe if they had waited 400 years until they figured out how to inoculate the entire native population. That seems rather bleak. <laughs> he and, and, and the the book gave the impression that the man was not happy that that was the best answer he could give, but that he couldn't think of anything else. Yeah. What else do you do? I mean, it's, it happened the way it happened. Smallpox, smallpox spreads as we said. You are asymptomatic for twelve days after you contract the disease. Mm-hmm. Then you become violently contagious, and then you might die. If you're in a a susceptible population, the very young, the very old, or of uh, of a background that has absolutely no genetic exposure to this disease, Mm -hmm. you have a much higher chance than just zero, one, and three. Yeah. So it was like this this disease was, I hate to use the word designed when it comes to something like this, but it was designed to wipe out a population that was set up like them with no prior, you know, with no prior exposure, with no understanding of how it's being spread necessarily of because 12 days is a long time to realize that you you were exposed to something 12 days ago that gave you this disease especially when it doesn't necessarily have to be directly from a person mm-hmm. it could have been touching something that someone diseased had touched yeah it's it's really unclear and, and when it's completely out of your experience like i i mean if somebody if you asked me what i had for lunch last week on wednesday i would not know what to tell you <laughs> Let alone trying to remember if I had touched infected material yeah. almost two weeks ago. Yeah. I'm, who, who isn't going to shrug their shoulders at that? I've seen enough episodes of House to know <laughs> that that could be a very confusing, it would confusing be almost, process to narrow that down. It, almost impossible. Yeah. I think it's interesting when we, when we first started talking, my perception of smallpox was of just this vague historical threat. And... It, and I thought of it as something that Europeans did to Native American populations. But I realized that I was still, you know, within that, within that narrative that we tell ourselves about that it was a very sparsely populated yeah. area. Yeah, and it, it's, it's really difficult to... I, I mean, this is one of those things where I'm not sure... I'm not entirely sure how we're taught that narrative. Because yeah. I can't think of an actual history class that I ever took where they told us that that's the way it was. It's almost more cultural or organic in in in, yeah. in the way that we learn that. And it's obviously it's patently false. It's been known to be false for decades now. It's not. This isn't. This isn't new material. This didn't come out no. three years ago. We've known for a long time. And what's but I've more, I've never I've never heard it described that way. I think of I think of our heritage moments. <laughs> you know, I love those where I learn all my history mm-hmm. before this podcast, and and just people sort of trudging through wilderness 
Yep. And coming up- upon... That's because it was wilderness because everyone had died. I, I, this, I, I hate wait, to be... This this just got dark. I hate... Er. I mean... <laughs> I, I know, I know. And it's it's, no. it's rough. It's it's a, it's a bit of a... It's a bit of a shock the first time you come across yeah. that, that statistic. But, like, saying 90 to 95%, that's not a... I, I'm not reaching for the most outrageous no. number that I can find. There's... There is solid agreement across the board that that's how many people were killed. It's just such a massive paradigm shift. Yeah. And... I find it interesting that you, you know you're saying that this is not new information. Decades old. We've well, and but, and, and but what's why more, why was I never? Why did I not have that image in my head of North America until now? Yeah, and, and what's more is that it's not that it's not that we got here thought okay, well this is all open, and then only discovered in the 1970s what had really happened. Mm-hmm. We got here, went wait, what's going on? Why am I finding ghost towns? did some digging around, figured out what had happened, mm-hmm. understood that and lived with that for centuries, and then underwent a fairly widespread cultural cover-up of what had actually happened until we got to this narrative of the wild frontier, of these yeah. this empty expanse, kind of in a lot of ways for the, the peace of mind of our culture, yeah. which is super messed up. Yeah. I mean, there, there were people that were owning up to this throughout the 17th century, 18th century. It's really only in the 19th century that you see this big push away towards towards the, the, the open uh, continent. Because I knew, I knew, I, I had a vague idea that, you know, Europeans brought over smallpox, but I did not know, I had no idea that it, that it decimated an entire population the way it did. Let's talk about a couple more specifics just to keep on track a little bit, if nothing else. Yeah, uh, the kind Plymouth of gobsmacked a little. Bit. I, I completely understand. I mean, I, I would be lying if I if I said I wasn't kind of expecting that out of this this section. It's part of the reason I, I was excited to talk about smallpox is because, like, I mean, it's it's <laughs> reflect on that sentence. No, 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 but I I, I stand by it. I was excited no. to talk about it because I think that it's really important to understand how there are forces that act on our story as yeah. uh, as humanity that are you know not just this king said that and that king got mad at the other one and we mm-hmm. all went and fought it out until we felt better about ourselves that's i mean yeah that's one big way that that history has been shaped mm-hmm. but this is another one where if we wanted to play what if you know playing around with smallpox changes things on such a huge level that you can't even begin to to speculate you know, what would it have been like if the native population was immune to smallpox? What if smallpox hadn't been brought over in the first place? What if we hadn't made contact with North America until after the vaccine was created? These are like, wow, I'm only saying that stuff to highlight how much of a difference it makes that smallpox was brought to the Americas at the time that it was. Mm -hmm. Not because necessarily going down those roads is going to bring us anything valuable. No, it's remarkable. The Plymouth, Massachusetts colony, you know, the pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving and all that good stuff yeah. uh, in 1633. Probably not as charming as the paintings depict. I, I, that's the impression that I've got, so I've been told. 1633. By 1636, smallpox had basically spread from Massachusetts up until uh, up to where we are now, like the, the Ontario, like the, the Grand River Valley area mm-hmm. um, into Iroquois ter- territory. Just... Again, massive deaths. 
that's better known because there were English Puritan settlers there going, what's going on here? But like a lot's a lot is just them kind of hearing reports of what's happening. Again, they're not in contact with all of these people that are dying. Yeah. They they you know, there were there were significant trade routes, there were road systems mm-hmm. across the continent where this stuff spread a lot faster than Europeans did. Europeans tended to pick one spot, settle it, hunker down for a very long time, and then sort of send people out on short voyages right. in the general vicinity. They didn't move quickly across the continent. Mm-hmm. Smallpox did. You've made reference to the, the uh, smallpox blankets a couple of times. Let's get this all straightened out. Because that's, that's a large part of my reference for smallpox. In 1763, a uh, Delaware chief named Pontiac, I know the car, all of that, it's... <laughs> Sorry, Chief Pontiac, we named a bad car after you. It, it, it bothers me every time I read about it. I, like, let's just cop to it. Pontiac? Pontiac. Pontiac. The Pontiac rebellions were basically the, the, the Delaware pushing back against British settlers that were setting up more sort of like fortresses mm-hmm. as, as, um, as stations on trade routes. There had been an agreement between the British and the uh, and the Pontiac that they were going to use an area for a while and then move out. How'd that work out? Uh, they, they fortified that, that fort. They made it bigger and stronger. Yeah. So the Delaware rose up against them. This was called Fort Pitt. Mm-hmm. And at the siege of Fort Pitt in... 1763, as I mentioned, on June 24th, 1763, General Jeffrey Amherst, remember that name because he's a jerk. <laughs> I want that on the record. He's the guy. What, wait, what's his name? Jeffrey Amherst. And what is he? A general. And? British. Okay. It happened once. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Amherst was like, these Delaware ain't no thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take care of them oh so quickly. Mm-hmm. Not a problem. The Delaware show up and he's like, oh, these guys are good. Mm-hmm. They're real good at fighting and stuff. This siege <laughs> is taking a long time. So he he decided, hey, how about we send some blankets from the smallpox ward out as like a peace offering to these to these warriors? And his superior agreed to this. By the time he had agreed, Amherst had already sent two blankets and a handkerchief out that had been in the smallpox ward and they knew had been infected with smallpox. They knew this. It was taken from the smallpox ward. People with smallpox had been shedding flakes of smallpox scabs on them. That's how you get smallpox. Mm. And they sent them out to the Delaware and the Delaware took them. Things to note about this story. Number one, this happened once. And it was Jeffrey Amherst. <laughs> Amherst. That's the guy. The jerk. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number two, we don't even know if it actually infected anybody. Mm-hmm. There was already smallpox amongst the Delaware at that point. There was no marked increase in smallpox. The, uh, the two leaders, the two Delaware leaders of that siege, neither of them got smallpox. Mm-hmm. So I don't say that to excuse the fact that they sent smallpox blankets out in the guise of peace offerings. But there's a good chance that it didn't even do anything. Mm-hmm. We just don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. The timing of the, the smallpox, smallpox outbreak amongst the Delaware doesn't really line up. Because as I said earlier, smallpox kind of follows a fairly level timeline. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really line up to show that the, the blankets had a huge impact. Mm-hmm. That's the smallpox blankets. That's it. That's all. Mm-hmm. That trope is... that. That's, it, it all stems from this guy. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and that's it. Mm-hmm. Smallpox was not regularly used as biological warfare against native peoples. Not maliciously. <laughs> like, not, not with intent. Not with intent. And yeah. I, I think that's the, the distinction between biological warfare and, say, pandemic. But Can, can I ask a question? Yeah, absolutely. They had it figured out that, they, that objects could be infected at this point. Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. They, they were well aware that of those blankets... They, they knew that were so, that if someone was to touch those blankets, mm-hmm. they stood a very good chance of catching smallpox. Yeah. They knew that those were infectious. Okay. I mean... I guess I, guess I was trying to clear up you, the timeline in terms of, like, how when they figured out, like, how this disease was spreading and, you know, airborne, face-to-face yes. contact, saliva... They knew that objects could be infected at this point. Yes, absolutely. Because this is 1763 that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I more or less want to end things around here. We're, we're, we're just about wrapping up for, for this particular episode. We're going to jump back in the timeline a little bit when we start next time. Okay. By 1763, they knew that material from the scabs of, of smallpox would give someone else smallpox. Okay. So this was done with full intent with full understanding of what they were doing the siege was going on too long they were trying to kill some of their enemy with smallpox nice yep general jeffrey amherst real stand-up guy remember that name he's yeah i i I should stop talking about jeffrey amherst now what was his name jeffrey amherst right outbreaks continued to ravage native americans completely disproportionately for like 200 years after uh, European contacts. Mm-hmm. Like, this didn't ever really go away. There was the initial uh, plague that killed like most of the population. But even after that, if you were of native descent, getting smallpox was closer to 60 or 70% chance of death rather than the, the one in three chance. Makes I mean, sense. like, a one in three chance still really sucks. Like, I keep saying that as though it's better. It's not. No. It's real bad. Yeah. You don't want smallpox. Best avoided. By the 1700s, which is kind of where we've gotten up to now, every seventh Russian child died of smallpox. One in seven children. If you had a child, one in seven chance. Wow. Like, that's that's massive. It's significant. It's significant. About 400,000 people a year died in Europe. Smallpox was a big deal. Yeah. It killed... Five reigning monarchs in the 1700s. It wasn't a disease of the poor. It wasn't a matter of hygiene. It wasn't a matter of quality of medical care. It was a way of life. It could be argued. Everybody got smallpox, and it doesn't matter who you are. You're probably going to get smallpox, and it doesn't matter who you are. You've got a good chance of dying. It's a brutal, brutal disease. So... I mean, I feel like we spent a lot of time going back over that point, but I think it's really important to understand because we have no concept of smallpox. No. I, I, a lot like you, I thought it was just an old-timey disease that people got, and you yeah. hear you hear about it ravaging populations, but how is that different than any other plague, really? And it's like, no, this is... No. This is so incredibly significant that this this disease looms larger in history than... We'd so, like to admit. Than so many individuals, than so many civilizations, really. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't discriminate in any way. No. It, you get smallpox, you might die. It's as simple as that. 
I think we're just going to end this one just like on a complete downer. So that... <laughs> I was going to say there's really no optimistic. Well, because there, so. well, because what we're going to do is is next next time what I want to do is just start completely in the pits. Yeah. And we're going to go all upswing because we know the ending here. Smallpox is gone. There's no more smallpox. Yeah. This is gonna this is gonna turn out okay. <laughs> Are you sure? Just remember. I'm sad now. <laughs> It'll be all right. Smallpox is gonna go away. But for today, I just want to end on really. I, I really really want to hammer home just how bad smallpox was. Yeah. It essentially depopulated an entire hemisphere. It was killing hundreds of thousands a year. There was no stopping this disease. The Black Plague was big because it hit hard, it hit Mm -hmm. fast, it killed a lot of people really quickly, but it burns itself out. It sure has a reputation. It has a huge reputation. Whereas smallpox is is so much more vague to us. The reason is because when the plague shows up, Mm-hmm. It's a it's an event. It's an experience. It's it's yeah. it's it's notable. You write it down as a plague year. Mm-hmm. Smallpox is always there. Yeah, it was to the point where people thought that smallpox was just a thing that happened to human beings. It sounds like it was for quite some time. Like like going gray, like <laughs> losing your teeth. Smallpox was just another thing that happened, and that's how bad it was. It was so bad that they couldn't even conceive of the idea of a world without smallpox. That sounds like a perfect place to end. All right, well, let's end it there. And next time we'll try and be a little bit less of a downer about smallpox. (laughs) It's difficult to overstate just how terrible smallpox was. But because the virus was so uniquely deadly, it also became one of the earliest targets of medical treatment and prevention. Next time on HI101, we'll talk about the process of making smallpox the first disease to ever be completely eradicated, from the first crude steps of protection to a final concerted global effort. That episode will be up March 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.